all around us, we see brokenness. Turn on the TV, and we see the effects of Hurricane Matthew. We see the, the terrible flooding and the devastation. See the island of Haiti and, and uh, that island being in, in ruins. We look at the horror of the U.S. presidential election. And then we can look closer and we can look to the people that we know and we see brokenness within families and, and heartache and, and trouble. And we can look in our own lives and, and we can find brokenness there too. So how do we deal with a broken world, with hurting people, with broken families, with weak churches? How do we deal with these things as believers? Well, this morning's text will guide us in that. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 1, and there was much brokenness. Uh, there was much brokenness among God's people here in Nehemiah. You'll remember from last week that God brought judgment upon his people, the southern kingdom of Judah. In 586, Babylon came and they wiped Jerusalem out. They carried off captives and they took uh, the, the leaders of the people and, and they took them off to Babylon. Uh, they, they only left a small amount of people in the land, people who, who uh, uh, didn't have leadership roles or influence or anything like that, folks. Uh, and so this whole community was living in Babylon. And they were crying out to God, of course, for restoration and change. But, but God had prophesied that they would go to another nation because of their sin, because of their wickedness, because of their refusal to repent and to walk with God. And so that's exactly what happened. Well, the, Babylon, the Babylonian Empire was eventually conquered by the Persians. And the Persians allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland. And so Zerubbabel led a group in 538 BC, and this group uh, began to work on rebuilding of the temple. That was completed around 515 BC. Ezra led another group back in 458 BC, and then, of course, Nehemiah will lead a group back in 445, uh, or four, uh, yeah, 445 BC. Now, Nehemiah held a position of power in the Persian government. We'll see more about that in a moment. But while he was serving the king of Persia in Susa, around 800 miles from Jerusalem, some of his people came, some men from Jerusalem came to see him, as we talked about last week. And, and Nehemiah said to them, hey, how are the Jews doing? How are those who have returned from captivity and who are uh, uh, back in the homeland, how are they doing? And and the men who came to see him said, it is a mess. The people are filled with shame. The city walls are broken. All the gates have been burned with fire. The place is a devastating mess. And this morning we'll see Nehemiah's response. Let's look together at Nehemiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. 
for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In this passage, we see that Nehemiah passionately prayed for his people. In verse 4, when he hears about the situation in Jerusalem, what does he do? He just falls down. As we talked about last week, he begins to weep. Now, I don't mean that he's watching a movie and it comes to a sad part and there's a tear in his eye. I don't mean that. I mean he's weeping and crying out to God. He's fasting. He's mourning. This is a picture of a man who is brokenhearted. A man who's, who's brokenhearted as we talked about last week. And he begins to pray, and we see his prayer in verse 5. He begins to address God, and what does he say as he addresses God? He says, God, you are great and awesome. And so Nehemiah comes before God, and he begins to praise God and lift God up and to honor God. And he begins to reflect on the character of God as he prays. God, you're great. You are awesome. And he He continues, and and he begins to pray scripture here. We're going to see that all throughout his prayer. He's praying scripture. He he begins to pray Deuteronomy 7, 9. And he says, the God who keeps his covenant and who shows steadfast love to, to those who love him and obey him. And so he refers back to the covenant that God made with his people after the Exodus, after he had delivered them from Egypt. Basically, God said to them, if you will love me and obey me, I will bless you. But he said, if you do not, and if you rebel against me, then I will bring judgment upon you, and I will scatter you among the nations. That's what God told his people. And so as Nehemiah begins to pray, he reflects on the character of God. God, you are great. You are awesome. You keep your covenant. You show your people steadfast love as as we keep uh, our end of the covenant. And so Nehemiah reflects on the character of God. Now, my wife and kiddos have headed up to Bowie to see uh, grandmas and cousins and family. And for my children, that is like the dream trip. You know, like the vacation you've planned on for a lifetime. They are asking, when are we going? When are we going? When they find out a Bowie trip's coming, this is like a thrill to them. And so I love to tease my kids. And I used to do this to Kate all the time. Now she's gotten older and she's kind of like, okay, dad. But... So I had to kind of shift the, the joke to my son. And so I said to Landon, he could not wait to see his grandmas. I said, Landon, when you guys are gone, dad's going to be here all by himself. That's going to make me sad. I said, I'm going to be so lonely. And I said, you want to stay here with me? 
And my boy, you know how kids are. They, he said, Daddy, God will be with you. <laughs> it, came back, it came back on us, didn't it? And so I, kept, I tried after that, but all I got from him was a scowl. So he was just kind of like, I'm going, you're on your own. If, if, the, if God being with you is not enough, Dad, you're not getting me too, okay? So, so Landon was committed to his trip, but he said something that we need to remember. He said something that's true and real. God is with his people. And that's what Nehemiah is reflecting on here. He's saying, God, there's no way you're going to let your people down. Nehemiah reflects on the character and the nature of God as he begins to pray. And as we pray, certainly our prayers ought to be informed by the character and the nature of God as well. In verse 6, we see a certain desperation in Nehemiah's prayer. What is he doing? He's praying day and night. Now, he, he doesn't mean literally that he's doing nothing but praying. We understand that he's in the service of the king. He has a job to do. But what we do see is that he is praying constantly, that he is desperate in prayer. This is not a little, oh, thank you for the food kind of prayer. No, he is seeking God on behalf of his people, crying out to God on behalf of his people. At the end of verse 6, he begins to confess the sin of Israel. He says, God, I confess to you that Israel, we have sinned, but he doesn't just say Israel has sinned. He begins to say, you know what, my own family and me too, God, we're guilty. We're, we're guilty. We have sinned against you. We have done that which you said not to do. We have rebelled against you. And so Nehemiah confesses the fact that Israel had been unfaithful to God's promises. And he also confesses that he himself had been unfaithful to God's commands. Had been unfaithful. In fact, he says, we haven't kept your commands. We've acted corruptly. And he says, we haven't kept your commandments, your statutes, your rules. And this is probably just a way to say comprehensively, we have rejected your law. You said, live like this, love God and obey him. And you know what we did? We did what we wanted, God. And so Nehemiah owns the sin of Israel and his own sin. And he confesses that sin before the people. Do you remember King David? King David was a man after God's own heart. But one day... One day he went a terrible direction. He was up on top of his palace and he was looking down and he saw a lady bathing and she was a married woman. And suddenly the next thing you know, he's in a relationship with this woman. She becomes pregnant to try to cover. David has her husband basically murdered. And David lived sort of in a blindness to that sin. That is, for a period of time, David didn't even realize how horrible he had been. But then God sent Nathan the prophet, and God spoke through Nathan the prophet. And suddenly, the blinders that had covered King David's eyes were gone. And David could see the sinfulness of his own heart, which I might add is the grace of God in our lives. When we get to see who we really are, it helps us understand our need for God. And so David recognized how sinful he really was. And he began to cry out to God. And we see the prayer that he prayed in Psalm 51. Read it. Read it. You'll see that it wasn't a, it wasn't a game. David was devastated by his sin. 
and he confessed his sin to God. And similarly, Nehemiah is broken over the sin of Israel and over his own sin, and he's, he's asking God for forgiveness. He's not playing games with God. He's coming clean with God. And look in verse eight. Nehemiah again continues to pray, and his prayers again are informed by, by Deuteronomy. He says, remember your servant Moses And how you said to them, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. And this is from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 64. And then he said, but if you return to me and keep my commandments, I'll gather you back together. And here he's he's praying through Deuteronomy chapter 30, the, the first few verses there. And so he reminds God of his promises. And what we see is that Nehemiah had confidence in the promises of God. He believed what God said. He, he believed it, and, and he, could, he could pray it back with, with passion. He could pray it back with, with trust and with confidence. And in verse 10, he says, you have redeemed your people with great power. And here he's looking at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29. And this is important because this is what Moses said, after the people were delivered from captivity in Egypt. So in many ways, Nehemiah saw this deliverance from from exile in Babylon, much like that that release from Egypt. And he's saying to, to God, your people have been held captive. But now, God, as we seek you and as we return, won't you gather us back together like you promised? Like your like your word says? Now, incidentally, I want you to recognize something about Nehemiah. He's not a preacher. He's not a priest. Nehemiah is a fellow who's working in a secular government. For those of you who are believers, you need to have a solid and strong grasp on the Word of God. Sometimes I will hear people say, well, that's, you know, I don't want to go too deep. That's for preachers. That's for, no, Nehemiah was a layman. He was working in a secular government, but as he prays, it is clear that Nehemiah knew the word of God. And so for those of us who are believers, God's clear command is that we know the word, that we've been in the word, and that it grips us so that when we pray, the word can come out of our mouths and we can pray back the word of God to him. Want to pray prayers that are in accord with the will of God? Let the word of God inform your prayers Please don't say, well, I'm a layman, so I really don't need to know the word deeply. That is not the example set in Scripture. The clear example is that if you know God, if you belong to him, you need to know the word, and you need to have a deep grasp of the word of God, as we see Nehemiah demonstrate here. And so, in verse 11, Nehemiah says, Please hear me. Hear the prayer of your servant. God, as I cry out to you, please hear. And he says, hear the prayers of your servants. In other words, Nehemiah is sure there are other faithful Jews who are calling out to God, asking for rescue, asking for God to move. And what does Nehemiah say? He says to God, give your servant success today. And it becomes clear that Nehemiah has a plan. Nehemiah has fasted and prayed and he sought God He's done that for months now, and he's come to the place where he has a plan, and he's saying to God, God, be with me as I take this step of faith. Please grant me mercy in the sight of this man. And we know from the book of Esther that Persian kings could be quite fickle. It could be that 
that they could decide to take your life. If you bring something to them, they don't want to hear. And so Nehemiah is pleading for mercy. Now I want you to see how Nehemiah has referred to God. God is great and awesome. Now I want you to see how Nehemiah refers to the king in his prayer to God. This man, this man. Now there's something there for us. Because you see, this was King Artaxerxes, the ruler of this great and powerful empire. But when compared to God, who was great and awesome, he was just a man. You see, Nehemiah understood that God was sovereign and that no man compares. That God is great and amazing. But Nehemiah, just a man. Pardon me, King Artaxerxes, just a man. Nehemiah knew that. He understood that. He got that. And so, was he scared to approach the king? Yes, but the king was just a man, and he served the king of kings. He served God Almighty. And so, we see that Nehemiah had confidence in the promises of God, like a ship at sea that that drops an anchor, and that ship's planning to stay planted. Nehemiah is planted on the promises of God. The promises of God are an anchor for him. He can count on God's word. It's going to be a sure and steady footing, a foundation for him. And so he can can pray with confidence as as he reflects on the promises of God. Now let's look together at chapter two. We'll look at the first five verses. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So here, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. Well, what's a cupbearer? This was a person who served the king wine and he would uh, keep up with the king's wine and he would often taste or check the king's wine. And basically, it was a means of security because there were always plots against kings. Um, His own father, Artaxerxes' own father was killed. And so there were always plots against the king and you needed a person in the position of cupbearer who was trusted, who was reliable, someone who would help to protect your life. And so if a wine was poisoned and the cupbearer takes the drink first, Obviously, that was a means of protecting the life of the king. And so Nehemiah had this trusted role. How did a Jew get this kind of trusted role in the Persian government? We don't know for sure. But Nehemiah's uh, step, uh, the, the stepmother of King Artaxerxes, pardon me, was Esther, a Jew. And so perhaps Nehemiah had gained trust through the fact that, that uh, uh, King Artaxerxes' stepmother was, was a Jew herself. At any rate... Nehemiah had a very high position in the Persian government. It was a position that lent itself to closeness to the king because he was with him all the time. And and so uh, it was clear that God was at work, again, sovereignly orchestrating his plan. In verse 2, we see that 
the month is, is Nisan. Now, this is our March, April. Remember when the, the people first came, the men from Jerusalem first came to give the report. It was November, December. So here we are four months later. Here we are four months later. And all this time, we get the idea that Nehemiah has been seeking God. He's been praying to God, and he's been lifting this situation up in prayer because he wanted to see Jerusalem thrive, because he wanted to see his people strong and thriving. In verse 1, Nehemiah tells us that this was the time when wine was before the king. Probably this refers to some sort of a festival. And so Nehemiah is with the king. He's testing his wine. And Nehemiah says, I've never been sad in the presence of the king before. Perhaps this was a part of Nehemiah's strategy to let the king see that he was, he was troubled. We don't know for sure, but that's a possibility. And so the king notices, hey, you're not sick, but I can tell you're down. Again, Nehemiah had probably built some relationship with the king, and so the king appreciated Nehemiah and, and, and uh, uh, here is concerned about what's going on in Nehemiah's heart. Now, I want you to see what Nehemiah says at the end of verse 2. When the king asks him that question, why are you sad? What does Nehemiah say? He gives us a glimpse into his own heart. He says, I was very much afraid. I was scared to death. Now, this is really important because it helps us understand that Nehemiah wasn't a superhero. He was a human like you and me, with real emotions, with real fears. This, this really happened. There was a day when Nehemiah really said to the king, my people are broken. There was a day when the king said to Nehemiah, hey, what's the matter? That, that really happened. And Nehemiah gives us a glimpse into what's going on in his heart. And it reminds us, that we do not have to be super Christians to serve God. It reminds us that all of us can walk with God and honor him. Nehemiah is a person just like you and me with fears, just like we have, scared to death. Nehemiah answers the king in verse 3 with respect, and he says, let the king live forever, a way to to honor the king, to to show uh, respect for the king, but he says, how can I be happy when I've discovered that the city where I'm from, where, where my fathers are buried, is in shambles? How can, how can I be happy? How can I put on a, a face of joy? And the king picks up that Nehemiah is asking for something, and so he says to him in verse 4, what do you want? What are you requesting? And again, Nehemiah gives us a glimpse into what's going on inside of his heart and inside of his head. And so what does he do as soon as the king king asks him that? What are you requesting? Nehemiah tells us, I prayed to God. I prayed to God. This is the moment that I've been praying about for four months now. And so he whispers in his heart a quick prayer to God, seeking God's favor once again. And then he says, King, Will you send me? Will you send me to go and to rebuild that city? Will you allow me to do that? And so as we reflect on this passage, there are five characteristics uh, that, that should be true of our prayers. There are five characteristics that ought to be true of our prayers. 
First, we ought to pray with reflection on the character of God. We ought to pray with reflection on the character of God. When we pray, if we're going to pray passionately as Nehemiah did, we have to be moved by who God is. We need to be moved by his greatness and his grandeur. We often look at God like he's domesticated, like he's little. But we can't have that view of God. That's not a biblical view of God. He is the sovereign ruler over the universe. There's no king who compares. He created the heavens and the earth. He is the only true God. So if we would pray with passion, our prayers must be informed by reflecting on the character and the nature of God. Second, we ought to pray with desperation. We ought to pray with desperation. We see this in verse 4 as Nehemiah weeps and fasts as he mourns. We see it in verse 6 as he says, I cried out day and night. Understand that our relationship with God is meant to be ongoing and it's meant to be characterized by seriousness. How many of us often go through spiritually just sort of coasting? We pray a little bit now and then. But then when the heat's on, man, we start going to God. Aren't we like that? But brothers and sisters, Nehemiah's prayer As you look at it, you can tell this man didn't just start praying yesterday or today. No, he's been a man of deep prayer. You can see it. You can hear it in his words. And so we need to pray with desperation. We need to pray regularly, seeking God constantly, calling out to him, recognizing him in the day-to-day, in the moments of life, not every now and then when things get tough, but all the time. There needs to be a certain desperation to our prayers that reveals how much we need God. That reveals that we recognize how much we need God. You see, the broken walls and the devastation of Jerusalem were this big, huge loudspeaker that said, hey, we need God to move. Folks, don't we have those everywhere today? And yet our prayers just sort of ho-hum. We pray a little here and there. Meanwhile, we're so busy doing this and doing that and having fun and being a part of this and reading this and posting that. I don't have time to pray. Oh, folks, our prayers ought to be characterized by a desperation, a desperation that is constant, that moves us. Our prayers should not be as if we are taking a casual walk in the park. No, our prayers ought to be as if we're walking through a war zone. Because we are. That's what Ephesians 6 tells us, that we're in the midst of a great spiritual battle. Do you pray as if you're fixing to take a walk in the park? Or do you pray as if you're fixing to walk in the midst of a war? Brothers and sisters, there must be a desperation in our prayers desperation that calls and beckons us to constant prayer to God, calling out to him. Now, this is the kind of prayer that we see Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
At this point in Jesus' ministry, he will soon be arrested and he will be put on trial and he will be nailed to a cross and he will die for our sins. He will die for the sins of his people. And so, in the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, Jesus is pleading to God in prayer. He's praying with, with desperation. And Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What do we see in Jesus? We see that he is praying earnestly. What was he about to face? He was about to face the cross. Why was he facing the cross? Because God had sent Jesus to come and to rescue You see, when Jesus came to this earth, he lived a perfect life. And he was nailed to the cross because of your sin and because of my sin. And Jesus cried out in prayer, asking God if there's some other way, then let that happen. But if not, then God, I'm asking you to to let your will be done. What was he saying? God, give me the grace to walk this path faithfully. You see, Jesus understood this was a war. It was a spiritual war. And he wanted God's will to be done. In fact, in Hebrews 5, 7, we're told in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So I wonder, would any of our prayers be characterized in that way? Are any of us crying out to God like this? Are your prayers those prayers of a person who's walking in the middle of a war or the person who's going for a walk in the park? Third, we ought to pray with confession of sin. We ought to pray with confession of sin. That's what we see in the end of verse 6 and in verse 7. Nehemiah confesses his sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, for a believer, for our sins to be washed away, what does it take? It takes a heartfelt prayer to say, God, forgive me. Wash my sins away. What about those those of you who, who have never turned to Christ? Well, the scripture is clear that if you have not put your faith in Christ, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. I, I don't know how to say it any more plainly. This is why Jesus faced the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was going to die on the cross for for your sin. But you have to call out to him. You have to turn to him. You have to be willing to say, God, forgive me. I don't want to go my own way anymore. God, I want to follow you. And if you've never done that, I want to say to you today, God's invitation for you is clear. Turn and believe. Turn from your sin and follow me. Believe in Jesus. That's what God would say to you today. Why was Jesus crying out in prayer? To make a way for you to know God, to make a way for a holy God to forgive our filthy sin. 
So in a believer's life, we ought to constantly be confessing our sin. If we've never become a believer, we should recognize that our sin must be dealt with and it will be dealt with at the cross or it will be dealt with at judgment, one or the other. Fourth, pray with confidence in the word of God. Pray with confidence in the word of God. In other words, trust the promises of God. God promises that he'll be with his people. You're never going to walk alone. You may have to walk through some really tough stuff, and all of us will. That's life in a Genesis 3 world. That's life in a war zone. But if you belong to him, you will never walk alone. Never. So you can have confidence in the promises of God. You can pray with confidence. So let the word of God inform your prayers. Trust the word. Believe what God says about himself. Corey Tinboom, that, that saint who helped Jews escape in the midst of the Holocaust, this is what she said about uh, prayer. She said, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? And I think that's a, a good question for us. Do we have confidence in God's promises and in his love for his people? Do we have confidence that God will, will keep his promises to us? If we do, then we won't treat it like a spare tire. No, it'll be central in our lives. Fifth, pray with faith and act with courage. Pray with faith and act with courage. This is what we see. Nehemiah has prayed. He's trusting God, and he's able to act with courage. He's able to go to the king and say, King, this is what's up. He doesn't dodge that Situation that made him scared. So trust God in your prayers. Call out to God in your prayers. And then obey God and and act with with courage. Live by faith, trusting that God's going to walk with you. Trusting that God's with you. Never, never for a moment should we walk as if we're all alone. If we belong to him, and this is just the example that Jesus set when he went to the cross. He prayed and he walked ahead, trusting God, trusting his father. Now, I, I can think of uh, a lady that I know who's near 80 years old. She's one of those precious, godly saints who calls out to the Lord in prayer. And if you have something you want prayed about, this is the lady to go to. Because there's no doubt that her knees are calloused. She's a woman who trusts God. She's a woman who holds fast to his word. And she's a woman who takes seriously the kind of example that we see here in Nehemiah. And she encourages and challenges other two as well by, by her example. Now I wonder, as we see the brokenness in our world, as we see the heartache in our friends' lives, in our families' lives, Does it lead us to pray? I mean, really pray. Does it lead us to pray? When we see the brokenness of our nation and the mess that we're in, does it lead us to cry out to God? To pray for mercy? To pray for awakening? Does it lead us to that place? What about within our own church family when we see folks struggling and hurting? When when we see... uh, that. That, that even in our own faith family, we need revitalization and, and new life. Does it call us to prayer? Desperate prayer. 
Or do we begin saying, well, if they'd do this or make this change, maybe that would help? We begin kind of strategizing, armchair quarterbacking? Or do we go to God and cry out in prayer? Not half-hearted prayers, but prayers that recognize the walls are broken. Prayers that recognize that there's devastation everywhere. So will we cry out to God? Will we plead with him? One church historian said this, when God intends to do a great work, he stirs up the people to pray for the thing he intends to do. And so I ask, where are the Nehemiahs here who are praying for God to move in our midst, who are praying for the brokenness in people's lives, who are praying that, that, that our church might be strong and might be powerful in this community and around the world and, and, and planting churches and, and, and spreading the gospel. Where are the Nehemiahs? Folks, I believe he's calling them up. I believe he's speaking to you and to me. Leading us to a place of not just complaining or fretting, but leading us to a place where we're on our knees, recognizing the war that's around us and calling out, yes, Pleading to God, pleading that God's will might be done, that God might be glorified here among his people. Join me in prayer.